welcome to Occult Experiments in the Home, Magic, Spirituality and the Paranormal in Personal Experience and in Practice. And for the first time ever, I've got a guest, my good friend Paul. Hello, Duncan. So, Paul, I would describe as a very experienced psychotherapist. I'm, I'm avoiding the word senior here. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> Who, like myself, has had an interest in the occult since God knows when. Paul's particularly experienced in working with folks who have experienced psychological trauma. What, what would you want to add to that, Paul, if anything? <laughs> I think that covers it, Duncan. Yeah, those are the main elements. And we've been practising magic together since... God, I don't know when. About 2012, 13? It's around that time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, this is a topic that's been on our minds for a while. Ethics. Ethics and magic. And um, it's something that, for the two of us, has assumed more and more prominence over the years. I mean, I would say, when me and you do a ritual now, it's all about the ethics. Mm. <laughs> and that's something that's only come into focus very gradually for me, and uh, something we're going to be exploring today. I mean, I'll, I'll kick off now. When I first got into magic, doing group magic, um, around 2005, there would often be rituals that, looking back on them now, I probably wouldn't have participated in. I remember one particularly memorable instance where the person who was bringing all the temple equipment uh, to the meeting, uh, he was on a train and all the temple stuff was in a suitcase and it was a crowded train. And the suitcase got nicked. When he got up to dismount from the train, the suitcase was gone. And there'd been a guy in the carriage looking a bit shifty, so he was fairly certain he knew who had taken it. So we ended up with this meeting where we'd just got no stuff whatsoever, just um, a bare room with a bare altar. You know, not really much of a problem to a load of chaos magicians, but... <laughs> A bit of a loss. So the first working that we did in that meeting was to curse that person. <laughs> and I think the statement of intent was literally to to reduce them to a greasy spot, to wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> I think this was before your day, Paul, so you weren't involved in that. But But looking back on that now, it is, to say the least, somewhat problematic, I think. I'm also wondering what he made when he opened up the case containing what he hoped were his gains. Weirdly enough, and this was also a part of the intent of the working, as well as reducing him to a greasy spot, was to get the stuff back. And we did get it back. Uh -huh. um, it, yeah. it did turn up in um, lost property, but some of the items had been nicked. I mean, I think there were some things that were... Um, semi-precious metals, those have gone. Right. Um, but as you say, he must have got a terrible shock when he opened this suitcase and found <laughs> sort of statues of Baphomet and various other choice items. But um, you know, ethically, I wondered if you uh, if you had any reflections on that, Paul. I, yeah, I don't think either of us would, even if we were inclined towards retaliation, mm. frame it in those terms I think we may think in terms of a sort of cosmic cease and desist there's it, it's a it's a very interesting area to start with uh, to what extent is retaliation justified yeah. ethically 
I would say being reduced to a greasy spot for stealing a suitcase, you know, the the punishment there, the retaliation, perhaps doesn't fit the crime. And maybe this is one of the one of the things with magic, of course, because you know, with magic, you can you can have any intent. You know, you can have an experience of anything becoming true. So I think there is a a, a temptation towards disproportionality. Whether there is inherent in the cosmic order a tendency back towards proportion and balance is another interesting question. So whether a statement of intent which is retaliatory and is clearly disproportionate, I think both of us would would think that now, would um, would it be more likely to fail due to being ethically suspect in the first place? It's a whole yeah. interesting area in itself if we take the idea that praxis incorporates and flows from ethics. Yeah. And of course, you know, with this particular example, we don't know what happened to that guy. You know, mm. we have no idea, no way of finding out. Yeah. You know, I would assume he wasn't reduced to a greasy spot on the floor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this perhaps as well is something to some degree peculiar to chaos magic because of course chaos magic doesn't have any kind of ethical framework around it at all it's um just a set of techniques that anybody can use for anything you know and i imagine that in other traditions i don't know thelema uh, wicca i mean i don't really know because i'm not really very well versed in those traditions but you know surely there's some sort of framework about you know the things that you're supposed to do and not do because they are religions chaos magic not necessarily yeah possibly the the very notion of belief shifting in chaos magic demands an ethics free ethos but to what extent is that even possible yeah i i doubt it's possible and you know maybe there's something peculiar to chaos magic there because as you say belief shifting is perhaps inherently ethically free so any ethics that are brought into chaos magic are likely to come from outside of that and i'm thinking you know you do tend to get with chaos magicians um people will have an influence from a specific tradition you know whether that's like northern tradition or tantra or buddhism or whatever you know with a group of chaos magicians in my experience you're likely in terms of ethics you know to have a very disparate kind of collection of systems you know that that people might be influenced by there is a parallel in um, therapeutic modalities Uh, Mm. it was a hot debate at uh, one stage probably about uh, 30 years ago between integrationists and technical eclectics integrationists arguing that we are basically amalgamating traditions or therapeutic modalities in such a way that the result is bigger than the it's more than the sum of the parts a technical eclectic might argue and uh, the technical eclectics were the chaos magic chaos magicians of the therapy world would argue that actually no we're not operating from traditions or modalities we are offering techniques and what we need then is an integrating framework in some fashion to guide selection of techniques i think it's something of a parallel for for chaos magic yeah 
and whether and this was the point I believe was implicit in what you were just saying that I don't believe anything can be ethics free it's going to be more or less reasoned mm-hmm. in terms of how explicitly the ethics are stated and worked through but even the notion of belief shifting whether it's because people as you say operate from particular belief systems that they already have they already have their enthusiasms in terms of spirituality or magical uh, traditions that's going to guide the belief shifting to some extent as is their own personal ethics i think someone's a lot less likely to shift into a belief system which is antithetical to their own personal ethical stances that's interesting so sounds like your view would be then that there is always some ethics involved you know it can never be completely ethically free it's coming in from somewhere it's feeding in from somewhere i believe so yeah yeah what i was thinking was another influence that comes in maybe and again peculiar to chaos magic perhaps is that sort of postmodernist emphasis which is a kind of suspicion of ethics a suspicion of morality you know if somebody is um proposing some sort of moral stance i think you know among a lot of people there's there's a, a suspicion of that that that's um you know authoritarian or negative in some way i think that it's a, it's a huge one isn't it I mean, it reflects yeah. the the slide in postmodernist thinking from a once really worthwhile project that being the ditching of the views of the powerful, which would o- otherwise automatically be there, to give space for previously unheard voices or peoples, particularly oppressed peoples, and a slide into a kind of anything goes because everyone's truth is as good a truth as anyone else's. And the free-for-all that comes with that, where we land with reality-denying ideologies in all sorts of domains, and some realities are human-givens, and I think we should be taking account of them. (laughs) I remember having an argument with somebody years and years ago, this was, and they turned around to me and they said, um, you know, get get down off your moral high horse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I turned around to them and I said, what's wrong with being moral? Yeah. You know, when when you turn that around onto people, there's there's not really an answer yeah. to that, is there? Yeah. Yeah, get down <laughs> off your moral high horse. Is, uh, it, it sounds like someone saying, you are making me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. You are demanding that I think about what I'm doing and I don't like it. There was an interesting uh, parallel, again in the therapy world, in the shift Mm. from codes of ethics and practice towards ethical frameworks. Mm. A code of ethics and practice was stated in typically more authoritarian language and it's a case of do this and don't do that. And a lot of people felt extremely comfortable following that sort of top-down approach. Because you don't have to think about it, presumably. Because, yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot less discomfort involved 
Whereas yeah. the shift into an ethical framework, which is certain, is far from being a free-for-all. There are still some central principles embedded within it, but it demands of people that they become autonomous ethical reasoners. And a lot of right. people found that extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> they, they did not like that shift. I wonder if um, there's a payoff, a trade-off between those two. So not having a framework means that you have to take more responsibility. You know, you have to become an ethical person rather than just uh, obeying orders or a rule follower. But is there something there about if the ethics is proceeding from the person rather than from the stuff that's written down, can people, can't they get on a moral high horse? Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. do do some people kind of um, assume that because they're doing it, then it's good because they're a good person? Indeed. I, th- I think that can be entirely misplaced. And I think what can happen is people come up with post hoc justifications for why they've done what they've done. And it might be couched in terms of ethical reasoning, but it wasn't there when they set out. Mm. And I think that's true of, uh, that's certainly true of therapists. I think it's true of magicians. Yeah. yeah. No, you're going to say. Well, I was just going to say that. And that sort of cognitive sleight of hand, I think, features in all sorts of ways in life. How do we yeah. reduce dissonance in ourselves when we've done something which, for instance, we think, oh, no, nah, don't, don't really like to think about the fact that I did that. <laughs> yeah. And maybe there's something there as well about the kind of domains that we're talking about, like therapy, magic, you know, these are kind of subtle realms. And actions are, and intentions are open to interpretation you know there is often a bit of wriggle room isn't there yes i'm thinking of um another example that i came across and this was a podcast i was listening to a podcast interview and it was an interview with um somebody who i think she was a kind of witch i think she was from south american tradition magical tradition and people would often contact her to and and they would pay her to inflict curses on people Mm. she also talked about doing spells you know to to make a couple split up so somebody could um you know get into a relationship with one of the couple certainly something i wouldn't feel comfortable doing Mm -hmm. but her way of justifying that was to say that she just didn't judge i don't judge you know i don't judge what clients bring to me i'm just there to do the magic pay me and i deliver a a service Mm. as if that somehow exempts her from you know any ethical wrongdoing there yeah i was about to say it's this sort of magical practice for uh late stage capitalism but i don't doubt it <laughs> happened before the stage we're, we're at as well it's uh yeah the wriggle room you referred to is i think is important i think that's that embeds the notion of goodwill which is not always stated in ethical discussions mm-hmm. where we're all of us perpetrators of wrongs on others we are all of us victims of wrongs from others mm-hmm. i think to approach other people and their actions and ourselves and our actions with goodwill and compassion is really important the i don't judge stance i think is untenable mm-hmm. We might be okay with a sense of not judging. I 
think both you and I will be less happy with the notion of abdicating from consideration of the sources and the effects of what we're doing. Yeah, and it is an abdication, isn't it? It is. And, you know, like you were saying, you can never really escape ethics. You can never really escape judgment because somewhere in that is going to be a judgment that it's okay to abdicate responsibility mm-hmm. you know there's a there's a judgment call there isn't there mm-hmm. so what is the responsibility from which we would be abdicating if we took that stance and it's clearly an ethical responsibility yeah yeah presumably to minimize harm central principle mm. you wouldn't inflict curses upon somebody for money no matter how valid you might think the reason was you wouldn't split up a couple no matter the fact that you know you can't judge anything about that situation you might not know anything about that situation because you don't want to increase the amount of hurt and pain in the world indeed the thing about magic is it's all about intention isn't it in magic intention is action yes you know and this is something that has always struck me like you could if you wanted to do a magical working to kill somebody with a sigil yes if you wanted to you could do that and just because it's easier to do that than i don't know going up to somebody and shooting them does that make it any less ethically reprehensible (laughs) because the intention's the same yes remoteness allows people i think whether it encourages or not is a perhaps a bigger question but it allows people to take stances and actions towards other people that they may not if that other person was sitting in front of them Mm. this makes me think of another example this one perhaps a bit controversial (laughs) i'm thinking about the sunflower the sunflower was a symbol for solidarity with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have a problem with solidarity for Ukraine, but it's a kind of a magical working. I mean, you know, folks on occult Twitter are explicitly putting the, the sunflower in their Twitter handle as a you know sort of magical working. It's a, it's a sigil, I think, in, in that context. And we've got Downing Street. You know, the windows in Downing Street at the moment are full of um, pictures of sunflowers, you know, drawn by school children. Now, my understanding of what that symbol's about is um, the woman who went up to the Russian soldier with the sunflower seeds and told him to put them in his pocket so when he dies, sunflowers will grow, you know, where his body has fallen. Yeah. That intention, that working, to me, could be construed as wishing death on Russian soldiers. I find that difficult. I do too. I don't want to wish death on anybody. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, distance sometimes encourages a a disproportionate response, maybe. It's a very kind of uh, passive-aggressive intention, I think. I mean, understandably so. You know, this is an elderly woman approaching a Russian soldier. You know, if it was me or you walking up to a Russian soldier, (laughs) we'd be... (laughs) You know, shot within a hundred yards, wouldn't we? And you know, her what she can say to him is is limited, isn't it? And um, and it is a powerful message that she gets across to him. But for everybody to adopt that from a distance, I, I struggle with that. You're you're wishing death on Russians, yeah. and um, no matter how much we may feel that they deserve that, and 
there's some justification for that argument I think doesn't doesn't sit comfortably with me especially when you're getting children to to join in with this uh-huh. Couple of things I think flow immediately from what you're saying, Duncan. There's the uh, there's the the reference there to classic Kantian ethics. Uh, does the principle that my action embeds stand as a guide for the whole of humanity? What if everyone did what I'm doing? And um, we, we've we've got some real doubts about that. The the other thing that flows is when when does retaliation become ethically justifiable? Mm-hmm. And who gets to do it? Thinking about the the febrile atmosphere that the online magical world. I mean, febrile is is the word I'd <laughs> I'd, I'd choose for it. And uh, people firing off all sorts of things towards all sorts of other people is retaliation, including deadly retaliation. Let's take it out of the magical realm for a minute. Okay. Just into life is deadly retaliation ever justified. I think both the law and a lot of people's ethical stances would say, well, yes, Mm. in certain limited circumstances, but justifiable and permitted for whom? So who gets to join in, as it were? Right. Because right. <laughs> the the online online occulture is, I mean, it's it's riotous and not in a good way. <laughs> so not necessarily for everybody to join in. Aha. Uh-huh. I think is what you're saying. Yeah. But of course, again, in magic, everybody can. Indeed. Very, very easily. And too often do. Yeah. 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 There's something here about restraint, isn't there? There's something here about ethically, you know, often often it can be ethical to do do nothing or to to hold back. Yeah, the the dying crafts volume 10 holding back. It's it's, it's gone missing. Yeah, I mean, what's coming? What's coming to mind is um, back in the day when me and you used to do paranormal investigations. Mm-hmm. A key question for us then was, would it be better if we didn't get involved? Yeah, you know, will will it be less harmful? Will things go more easily if we stay away? Yeah, you you isolated that key principle earlier. Above all else, do no harm. Within the context of an intervention of whatever description that could potentially be fruitful, so in the you know, again the therapy realm, something that has potential clinical utility, going into a building to do a paranormal investigation, it could be really interesting. There may be all sorts of things which flow from it, but then there is that central principle: do no harm. Yeah. Now. That said, <laughs> one of the things I've discussed on the podcast before, there's that guy Federico Campagna who wrote that book, uh, Magic and Technic, I think it's called. Uh-huh. And he talks about how the ethical frameworks, if you like, between magic and the everyday world, you know, maybe they don't completely line up. So for the everyday world, do no harm. It's a pretty solid, mm-hmm. solid guide. But in magic, he suggests that you've got a subtle shift and it's less about avoiding harm, maybe more about, as he describes it, maximising the opportunities for salvation. Now, as we know, magic isn't free from harm. I often find myself in a position where I'm saying to people, I don't recommend that you do this because it's not risk-free. 
Mm. Like just just yesterday, somebody wrote to me asking about retreats to go on, and and um, I uh, told them about Goenka retreats. You know, hard ass ten day vipassana retreats. But I have to say, at the end of the email, this is what I did. I got that out of it. But I can't recommend that you do this mm-hmm. because these retreats are intense. They bring up a lot of stuff. And if stuff does kick off, then it's quite likely that the teachers who are running the centre may not know how to handle it. So is is there a shift here when we get to magic? People can crash and burn when they come to magic. We know that. We've seen that. But they can also benefit from it hugely. There's got to be a benefit from the risk. If you're going to do magic, you don't want to subject yourself to pointless risk. It's got to go somewhere. It's got to lead somewhere. And the leading somewhere is, at that point, only a potential Mm. to lead somewhere. I mean, what's in my mind is, you know, the great work, awakening. Mm -hmm. It's got got to lead to awakening. Um, In terms of everyday morality, where you're avoiding harm, that's an end in itself, isn't it? To dare in that context, as you and I know, carries the potential for both profound gain, probably the biggest... Mm. that there can be mm. in some really important ways yeah but only that could justify it couldn't yeah it? yeah for people who get away with the, the lightest of experiences it, it's it's yeah i'm just revising that even as i say it. i don't think there is <laughs> there is a light way through it, it it's, it's the the deepest rawest encounter with some central aspects of self mm. and existence. What sort of risks are acceptable is a, is a really interesting question. You know, you've, you've written on, and uh, we've, we've both of us talked about, how vogues shift in the therapy world, particularly CBT, mm. where the, you know, the central intellectual dishonesty that there is in CBT gives it a juggernaut strength the hoovering up of ancient traditions and a re- regurgitating as mindfulness is is a really good example. Now, a lot of people have gained from mindfulness practices. Yeah. Divorced as they are in uh, CBT research from the, the cultural milieu and traditions in, in which they arose some people have a really difficult time they sit down to do what they think is a bit of relaxation and everything goes sideways for them yeah you know, what proportions are we talking about i don't i think there there's a uh, there's an antipathy to research in this area and but yeah. what sort of proportion would be acceptable because there's yeah. the splashback and what comes to my mind as well is the folks for who it all goes sideways are possibly the ones who are maybe going through the awakening process to some degree rather than the ones um, who get the benefit because they're just chilling out aren't they (laughs) yeah yeah of course in therapy you don't want to do any harm of course not but in therapy things often get worse before they get better especially i imagine in the kind of field that you work in If we take the idea that therapeutic gain involves the piercing of avoidance and dissociative processes to allow for the central 
tasks, however defined, to be discharged. Yes, that's mm. that's going to feel worse. There is the paradoxical uh, observation, of course, that it, it's a sign of progress and the piercing of avoidance and dissociation can be titrated. It can mm. be managed. Yeah. But it's it's got again got its discomforts. Yeah. Mm. And like the spiritual path, um, once started, best finish. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you know, it's it's going to be harmful, isn't it? It is. Mm. You buy your ticket for the ride, and you you go through to the finish of the ride. Yeah. I mean, I'd stick my neck out and say, as a magician, you are inevitably going to get harmed along the way, in all sorts of ways. I think so. We've both experienced that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, we do. (laughs) And yet, we do. Your own observation that there's there's a Dr. Faustus uh, element to it. We have to know. Mm. And the the bargain involved is uh, quite often we will get vigorously slapped yeah. in the process and some of it is horrible yeah mm. yeah and maybe that generates compassion over time you know if you're constantly getting your ass kicked what what is the cause of compassion you know it's suffering isn't it it is if there if there wasn't any suffering there wouldn't be any compassion there wouldn't be any need for it but there is suffering and mm. And compassion is the um, the reaction to that, the antidote to that. And um, maybe could that be why ethics becomes more important as you as you go along the path? I mean, in Buddhism, there's this idea that ethics is the first practice and it's the last practice. Mm. So you develop your training in ethics in order to be able to handle what meditation throws at you. And then after you've had your awakening experiences, um, you come back to the world and that framework is still there. But I wonder whether it's it's more than just coming back to something, whether it's something that actually grows from the process. Like I think for me and you now, when we do a magical working, it's, it's just an ethical discussion, isn't it? Which, which first starts off with, should we even be doing this? And then how are we going to do this thing? You know, ensuring the least possible harm to everybody, <laughs> and that's the working these days, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> and the, the 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 working out of that means that what we envisaged that we might do is often very different by mm. the time those discussions have taken place. A very, yeah. a very common um, feature might be we we might be able to think of something which might bring about gain in some fashion to someone mm. um, for the balancing of the risk of harm do we drop the striving for that gain because of the potential for harm and at what level do we do that mm. and the, the unsatisfactory answer is it depends <laughs> <laughs> splash back to people uninvolved is is a real problem ethically yeah. you know we would both be disinclined towards doing anything that involved that yeah it's so complicated isn't it it's so much more complicated than just sticking and it harm none onto the end of your intent <laughs> yeah <laughs> which you do see a lot don't you yeah 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 
it's a sort of cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card, and uh, it's... Nah. And like you were wondering earlier, does that mean that reality is less likely to, to furnish the goods? Yeah. You know, if you just stick that on the end. Yeah. Sticking that on the end of a working means you haven't done the ethical thinking to start with. Well, it's not going to work, is it? If it's going to harm somebody, is basically what that's saying. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of, uh, yeah. kind of, you, you, you're sort of like hobbling your magic to yeah, start I off mean, with, aren't you? It negates the whole procedure. And possibly yeah. you didn't do the thinking in the first place. Yeah. You could save yourself um, some time and do the ethical thinking, couldn't yeah, you? you could. Rather, rather than do all these half-assed workings that, that yeah. don't lead anywhere. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. If a working flows from an ethical stance, it becomes not only more evidently justifiable, potentially becomes more effective. Mm. There's a more wholehearted alignment available with it yeah so maybe we should share some details of uh, some of the work we've done in this vein mm. I wonder whether maybe it might be best to start with the example of that working that we did the other week mm-hmm. yeah considering what we've just been talking about mm. so the situation is uh, a friend who we know who's in a difficult situation in the workplace there's somebody in the workplace who's making life horrible for everybody there and this person how would you put it this person's actions are malignant they Mm. are causing considerable harm to others including our friend yeah and this person's actions are also bound up with questions of race they belong to a ethnic minority and they've raised numerous complaints about racial discrimination and a lot of people have been suspended didn't sound as if the situation had been managed very well at all by the organisation concerned which I think had exacerbated things Mm. and our friend had found you know it just wasn't a good place to work anymore he just didn't want to be there anymore Everybody was in in fear that they were going to be next in the firing line for a complaint. Hopefully that's a fair picture. I think so, as far as we can go with it. So the question was, what what could we bring? What sort of magical intervention could we offer? Mm. And to begin with, we were contemplating some sort of binding, uh, some sort of restraining type of working, I think. I think one of the first things we considered was the law of unforeseen consequences and how something intended as a a binding to limit someone's sphere of operations in in what sort of harm they can cause could backfire, Mm. could make things worse. We were going to use our servitor for this, weren't we? We should... um say a little bit about our servitor Merkachank <laughs> as he's called. Merkachank in design and uh, some of your listeners may already have got there with the, the, the anagram of the name is uh, extraction from uh, Karma Machine Light, lightly termed um, the idea that cease and desist might be accomplished by turning the person's actions back on them yeah. When we talked about is it ever justified to 
retaliate is retaliatory action uh, ever justified i mean there's even a step before that which is is in some way stopping what's happening even if it's against a person's wishes i.e the perpetrator is that an okay thing to do and i think you know under a lot of circumstances that that very much is maker chank in in terms of correspondences was uh, is uh, saturn based the uh, angel involved is Cassiel. The metal involved is lead. All within a physical base and all charged with with those sorts of correspondences. And I remember the visual image that gave rise to Merkachank. I think you came up with it. Was um, Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny, wasn't it? You yeah, know that yeah. that moment in the Bugs Bunny cartoons yeah. where. Elmer Fudd comes up against Bugs with the rifle and uh, Bugs calmly plugs his thumb into the end of the rifle and Elmer pulls the trigger and the, the rifle backfires. It yeah. goes back into his face. So this idea that the perpetrator's actions are, are visited back upon themselves mm. and the the victim of the perpetrator you know, is, is unaffected by that in any way. That was the idea. And he's had a few outings, hasn't he, Merkachank? He has. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember the first one was um, a situation we had where somebody in an organisation adjacent to one that we were involved in was being an ass, being an absolute ass all the time, trying to create trouble for the organisation that we were in to the benefit of his organisation. We really designed Merkachank around that with, with the aim of sort of visiting on him the... <laughs> The, the kind of stuff that he was throwing in our direction. Mm, it was. And I, I, as I remember, part of the impetus for that was that uh, it was being done in such a way it was insidious. It was very mm. difficult to uh, combat because he could slide away from it. Uh, his actions had that slippery quality. We thought that's very difficult to combat, but unless something is done, this will continue. So what we were looking forward to when we initiated Merkachank in this situation was seeing this guy being visited with, with some of his own crap. Mm. But interestingly, that wasn't the outcome that we got, which was really unexpected. Um, so once we'd done the working, mm. suddenly he was as nice as pie, wasn't he? He was. And it's, it's as good a result as any, wasn't it? He was, he was as nice as pie and, and there was no trouble anymore. Mm. Yeah. And we had that result a couple of times with Merkachank. We did. Which yeah. not really been able to explain. Mm. So this was a servitor designed to visit on people the crap that they were giving out. But every time we've used it, the situation has just resolved. Yeah. That being, in many ways, the, the most unexpected bit. The, the cease and desist aspect of it, great. It was there. Mm. So, success. The, the switching of the attitudinal shift that happened within it that was really unexpected and really interesting so in this working the recent one that we were talking about with our friend our first instinct was to deploy Merkajank, you know and either the person would get a taste of their own medicine or they might become as nice as pie <laughs> but you had some misgivings mm. one was what we touched on earlier being the, the idea of working remotely mm. in a situation which we, we felt we had information on but was was not in our experience, as in directly, personally. We've both experienced such situations in life, but this set of circumstances 
was not in our direct experience and it would have been all too easy to be gung-ho about an intervention. We took into account considerations like the source of the perpetrator's actions and Mm. we just didn't know enough. We didn't know about that person's story, their circumstances, the distress perhaps that was potentially steering them into these actions. We simply didn't know. No. And I think it's fair to say that certain types of personalities, if you confront them with their own stuff, they just get worse. Yeah. And um, we we did have a bit of a sense that that might be the case. Mm. One of the uh, linking features with some personality structures is the complete absence of goodwill towards anyone but the self and um, that often doesn't get improved (laughs) with intervention (laughs) (laughs) and then also there was the discomfort of the idea of a load of white blokes launching a magical intervention against somebody from a racial minority which you know whether there's any justification for that or not just Mm. doesn't feel right yeah and that discomfort's an interesting thing in itself Mm. what the body's signaling there in terms of possibly embodied intelligence and sensitivity it was just massive discomfort from the off and maybe i mean not that we necessarily uh, pursue it now but that's that's an interesting notion maybe that discomfort as part of what we're drawing on as a guide to ethics maybe it is an important feature but yes that was that discomfort was clearly there yeah yeah so long story short (laughs) what we did in the end was we didn't direct any intentional magic towards that person at all we directed it towards our friend yes and we did a working an angelic working to heal him of the you know trauma and discomfort that he'd been through so we just cut this other person out of the circuit Mm. entirely Mm. and um a few days later our friend got a new job yeah so that entire working was basically designed from thinking through the ethics of it wasn't it it was that was what was up front from the beginning and that was what determined the form it took and blindingly simple in the end wasn't it it was the best way to proceed just seemed to be to to just focus on our friend and heal him and um you know and then give him the option Mm. to to do a similar working for anyone within the organization that, that he felt needed it yeah the principle of parsimony of intervention is a really nice one here because as we talked about the ethical the ethical context the working the working got leaner and leaner mm. it was in the end minimal but meaningful flowing out of those discussions and that principle of like you're saying parsimony and intervening to the slightest degree that you can mm. it's so important isn't it it is 
I mean, I'm, I don't know. Is is this similar to the the kind of Taoist thing of, you know, mm. non-action in a way? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And then and then that's interesting because it's coming out of ethics. It's coming out of wanting to do the least possible harm. You know, I always think of Taoism as this sort of like I don't know. Vulcan mind trick you know, <laughs> that you, that you have to do where you're you're doing something without doing it, wanting something without having any desire, you know. But is it is it really anything strange or unusual? It's just trying to be as least an arsehole as you possibly yeah. can be. <laughs> Central ethical principle: don't be an arsehole. It it makes well, sense in energetic terms as well, whether. Mm personal energies or thinking about different models of magic quantum levels of energy that the leanest intervention would have most chance of success Mm. building a massive edifice too many variables at work Mm. and with too many variables the potential for too many confounding variables ethical and otherwise yeah strange to think isn't it how an ethical approach can actually be about simplifying things about bringing things right down to basics Mm. rather than something that you have to strive at you know that you have to kind of put effort and work into Mm. yeah the classical ethical principles leaving aside more postmodern narrative uh, your contextual uh, takes on ethical discussions they're not they're not complex those notions right they are complex in the working out yeah yeah. And they're complex in, you know, the description of them. But I think, you know, what I'm taking from what you're saying is basically it boils down to don't be an arse. Don't be an arsehole. To what extent does my therapeutic practice and my conduct in life reflect what I've just been saying? Um, I find the first a lot easier than the, the second. The therapeutic practice. Yeah, I'd, I'd have a, a, I've, and it's been a, 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 a slow process. I mean, it's decades mm. into stripping out all sorts of things, really lean models for practice. I don't want to go into a session carrying a huge theoretical edifice in mm. my head. I mean, I, th- I think those are there at some level not always articulated but they're clearly around but I'd like to do quite simple things that are guided by worked out intentions and values so my practice has got leaner and leaner but then you said more difficult in everyday life (laughs) you know and I'm wondering um is our magical practice somehow separated from our daily life like a a therapeutic practice might be a professional practice mm-hmm. maybe that's what we're looking for in magical development that honing down you know getting leaner simpler i think we could go for another few days on the notion that you've just highlighted that being how how does magical practice reflect how we are in life and vice versa they relate in such nuanced ways I mean, you and I have talked about the implications of the HGA experience and Mm. we've touched on it in in this conversation. Has that ported into everyday life? Oh, yes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That's in some very far-reaching ways. And, as you were highlighting earlier, 
a lot of that has been extremely uncomfortable, mm. both inwardly and externally in my external world. So do they relate? Yes. Yeah, I think very much so. And it can be subtle. It can be mm. subtle. I think we may not notice how how things have shifted, how things have changed. Looking back on my development, you know, just as a as an example, back in the day I used to be quite a kind of cerebral, logical creature. Do you know what I mean? And now I, I live so much from my heart. I'm primarily an emotional person now. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's partly to do with the ageing process, but I think maybe we don't even notice these changes in ourselves. You know, we don't notice the effect that our practice has on us sometimes. Yeah. But I'm a completely different different person to how I was. Yeah. And um, my sense is that that's something that's likely to probably keep going in that direction. Yeah, I think so too. The refuge that I found, or thought I'd found, in uh, the cerebral realm from <laughs> the vicissitudes <laughs> of life was uh, has been pretty much exploded. Well, it's been lovely, Paul. It's been grand, Duncan. Thank you. We'll have to uh, get together again and yeah. talk about other stuff. Yeah, I'd like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Grand. Take care. You too. <laughs> <laughs>